we perhaps left it later than we should have done. In hindsight, that's one of my biggest regrets. We decided to go to the doctors and have some tests done. They didn't come back very well for both of us, really. I took the news of not being able to have my own kids worse than finding out I had cancer. This week, 40 years ago, the first baby conceived using in vitro fertilisation, IVF techniques, developed to help people who couldn't have children naturally, was born. Her name was Louise Brown, and she owes her existence to the pioneering efforts of Cambridge embryologist Bob Edwards, research nurse Jean Purdy, and Manchester-based gynaecologist Patrick Steptoe. Together, this team laid the foundations of the techniques that are now used all over the world to help people conceive. And this week, we're looking at the science of fertility treatment, telling their story and talking to some of the people whose lives they've transformed. We'll also hear from Louise Brown herself later in the programme. I'm Katie Haler. I'm Chris Smith, and this is The Naked Scientist. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. Now, between 80 and 90% of couples will fall pregnant naturally within a year. But for some, having a baby simply isn't that straightforward. So, at what point should you seek help if you're worried about your own fertility? Why do some people struggle to get pregnant and what can be done about it? Well, the first port of call is usually your doctor. And Cambridge-based GP Sarah Smith is here to explain how she approaches patients who are in this situation. So, Sarah... At what point should people go and see their GP? So if you're under 35 years of age, we recommend people try for a baby for two years. And then if you're over 35, we recommend trying for a year. And then if nothing's happening for the couple, do come along and see us and we'll talk about it and see what can be done. When you say we'll talk about it, what kinds of questions might you ask? So sometimes just the lady comes, sometimes the man might approach us and sometimes the couple comes. So we take a history from both of them and just find out what their lifestyle's like, if they're leading a healthy lifestyle. Um, We'd find out how long they've been trying for and then think about whether there's any past medical problems that might be affecting their fertility. So, for instance, somebody may have had an ovary removed or something or a testicle removed. And then we'll move on to perhaps examining them. So we'll, for ladies, we'll check their cervix is OK. Just make sure their menstrual cycle's regular. Um, find out if they're having any problems with any heavy bleeding or pain. And say someone's on contraception. Obviously, they need to come off that in order to, to get pregnant. But how long do they need to be off that contraception for? Yeah, so with the contraceptive pill, you can be off it for just one or two months and women can fall pregnant quite quickly. If you're on the contraceptive injection, it can take longer. And we counsel women about that. It can take up to nine months for your fertility to return to normal after that. If an implant or a coil is removed, again, fertility returns to normal fairly quickly um, within one to three months. So there are certain examinations that you might do on uh, a woman. How about a man? Yeah, so um, a man as well, we'll ask them about their sperm. We can get them to do a sperm sample and look into the sperm counts. And we can look at the sperm under the microscope to see if they're swimming well and healthy. And if the sperm count's not quite right, we can then arrange a repeat sample to see if we get an abnormal sample on two occasions. 
Um, and actually, 40% of couples, it is the male and the female that have problems with their fertility. OK, so having a healthy lifestyle, I'm guessing, is advantageous to getting pregnant. Are there certain specific risk factors? Yeah, so it's a good idea not to smoke. We recommend not drinking any alcohol or keeping it to a minimum. And then cannabis and other recreational drugs, it's best to avoid um, because all of those things can affect your egg and sperm quality. Okay, so this is for both parties. Yeah. And then the other things, a lot of people are leaving it a bit late in life now, particularly with women having careers. So as your age increases, your fertility decreases. And nowadays we're having quite a big problem with obesity. And we know that women who are overweight or obese can have more problems conceiving and similarly if ladies are anorexic or too thin they can have problems conceiving as well. How are we doing on a national scale? Overall about one in seven couples will have fertility problems and as I said four in ten couples there is a problem with the man and the woman and around I guess um, 10 to 12 percent of us will have some sort of infertility in western Europe. And what does that look like in terms of the future? Do you think things are likely to change? I think we have to be sensible when we're young. Um, It's best to have safe sex and use condoms to prevent sexually transmitted infections because that's another big thing. If you pick up things like chlamydia and gonorrhea, it can scar your tubes and cause fertility problems. So do, you know, practice safe sex. Um, Do think about your fertility because simple things like that can help us preserve our fertility for when we do want to start a family. So a couple or someone comes to see you, um, you've had a conversation, you do some tests. If they need further help, what does that look like? What do you do? Yeah, so the first thing we do, we check the lady's hormones in the first um, three to five days of their menstrual cycle. We make sure their FSH and LH hormones are normal to stimulate a normal egg release each month. And then we can get them back about two thirds of the way through the cycle around day 21 in a lady with a 28 day menstrual cycle to check their progesterone level, to check if they've ovulated and produced that egg. Then we can also send them for an ultrasound scan to check that they've got a womb, to check that they've got ovaries um, and to make sure everything's nice and normal. Um, We do smear tests to check for any cervical um, cell problems on the cervix. And then for the man, obviously, we do the sperm sample. So we do all of those tests to start with so that that's ready for the fertility specialist if we need to refer them on. And then the fertility specialist can then pick up on that and perhaps arrange further tests for the lady. There's an x-ray test with dye you can have to check that the fallopian tubes are open. And there's a little operation you can have with a camera through your belly button and some blue dye. And then they watch the blue dye coming up through the fallopian tubes and out spilling onto the ovaries to check that the tubes are open. We'll have to leave it there. GP, Dr Sarah Smith, thank you very much. Now, whether you can conceive naturally or get help from fertility specialists, hopefully the end result's going to be a healthy baby arriving about 40 weeks later. But how does a fertilised egg turn into a baby? I went to see expert in human development at Cambridge University's Gurdon Institute, Azim Surani, whose other claim to fame is that he was doing his PhD with IVF pioneer Bob Edwards 40 years ago. I remember the day when Louise Brown was born. I was actually on holiday in Cornwall and I heard the news and I sent a telegram to Bob congratulating him. No email in those days? There was no email in those days, so I had to send him a telegram. Let's go right back to the beginning of the life process, which begins with sperms and eggs. So what is special about those two cell types that makes it possible for them to give rise to 
an embryo and then a, a fetus and a baby. The egg and sperm only contain half the number of chromosomes, so they only have half the information for making a whole organism. And you need to fertilize an egg so that you have both sets of information from father and mother. That's when the process of development can start. And how does the egg know, in inverted commas, it's been fertilized? Well, at fertilization, there are changes in the levels of some chemicals like calcium in the egg. And that actually starts the process of early development. That's when the egg starts to divide and starts to develop further. If you've got millions and millions of sperm competing to fertilize the egg, why is just one successful? Yes, this is actually very important because what happens at fertilization is as soon as one sperm enters the egg, there are changes in the membrane of the egg which prevents further sperm from getting in. This is actually very important because you need exact numbers of chromosomes from each of the parents. If you have too many from the father, then the process of development will go awry. So sperm gets into the egg triggers this change in the membrane, preventing any other sperm getting in. It then gives its genetic cargo to that egg. So we've now got a cell with, hopefully, a complete assemblage of chromosomes, 23 pairs of chromosomes. Then what happens? Well, this is the point when the egg starts to divide, and it divides into two cells first. And it then continues to divide as it travels down the fallopian tube and enters the uterus. And as it divides, it, the cells continue to multiply. They go through a number of divisions until the embryo reaches about 60 to 100 cells. What's special about that number? Basically, there are two sets of cells. There are cells on the inside, which are called the inner cell mass cells, which are going to give rise to the embryo. And then there's the outer shell of cells, which will give rise to the placenta. So we're at the stage where we, we have a ball of cells inside a ball of cells. The ball around the outside is going to be the bag that the baby develops in and the placenta that connects it to its mum. But how does that ball of cells in the middle turn into something we would recognise as a developing baby? Well, one of the early things that happens is that the embryo starts to look like a sheet of cells. And at one end of the embryo, you start to form a little structure called the primitive streak. And here the cells start to enter into the primitive streak and they go inside and that those cells are eventually going to give rise to the structures which we recognize as the internal organs eventually. And then it starts to be recognized as a developing fetus. So cells are flowing in from the outside yes. into the inside. It's almost like inflating itself with, its, with more of its own cells and it creates that population of cells inside itself yes. which then they're destined to become the internal organs and so on. Yes. These cells, they start to become more specialised as the embryo develops. It becomes three-dimensional and it starts to be recognised as a fetus. But then what happens next to actually turn this very primitive, very tiny one-millimetre structure into something that would resemble a baby? The key aspects that occur from then onwards are increasing numbers of cells and also increasing complexity of the developing internal organs. By which time are all the major organs developed? Things like the heart, liver, brain, face, eyes. When are all the major things made and when are they present by? The early stages of organogenesis are occurring between day 28 and 35 days of human development. This is when all the rudimentary organs are already formed. So all the basic structures start to get established by this time. 
And then thereafter, there is tremendous growth of the embryo as, as development progresses. Are we comfortable that the manipulations that are being done on sperms, eggs and embryos to do things like IVF don't have consequences for the, the health of that individual? From all the experience we have had from all the IVF babies that have been born, there is at the present time no clear evidence that there's an impact of IVF. Now we have to remember that Louise Brown is 40 years old, so it's still quite early days. So I think it's something that we, we should actually keep an eye on and to see if there are very long-term consequences of IVF. But at this stage, we're not aware of any. There have been a number of experiments that have been done to test if there have been any effects of manipulation of eggs and sperm in culture. But so far, majority of the evidence is that there's no potential impact of manipulation of eggs and sperm in culture. And last, Azeem, after you returned from your holiday, having sent that telegram to your supervisor, Bob Edwards. What happened next? I came back to Cambridge and we had a lot of celebrations, a lot of champagne was drunk, I have to say. I'm not surprised at all. Azim Sarani there from the Gurdon Institute in Cambridge. Now, someone else with a reason to celebrate is Jessica. and She told us her story. Like probably many young women out there, I'd been on the pill, the contraceptive injections for sort of 10 years or so. Uh, When things don't happen, it's like, oh, it can take a little while to get out of your system. For a long while, we were unsure if we were just missing the fertility window. We perhaps left it later than we should have done. In hindsight, that's one of my biggest regrets. By the time I went to the doctor, we'd probably been trying for over three years, at which point they ran some tests and discovered I had polycystic ovary syndrome. It is quite a blow when you discover that it's you that are causing the fertility problems in in your relationship. Jessica had various drug treatments to encourage ovulation, in order to assist in natural conception, but these weren't successful. And strangely enough, fell pregnant naturally. We couldn't believe it. Unfortunately, we did suffer a late miscarriage, which was a really difficult time. Um, we had to delay thinking any further than for, for a while because we couldn't understand why we could get pregnant to then lose the baby as late as we did I suppose so it was that was a really challenging time for us as both as people and as a relationship we're not ashamed to say we did get counselling and help at that time ready to go back and and try again on my third actual IVF treatment role we did get response I was warned that because we were pushing my body really hard, we'd probably have to freeze the embryos to give my body time to recover from the drugs used in the stimulation phase. So we went to Australia for a few weeks to recover. So we then had one single embryo transferred after that. I did become pregnant, but it suffered an early pregnancy loss. But we got straight back into it after having the the two clear month cycles. And we had two transferred after that, which I did become pregnant and we had a successful pregnancy with. I joked 
even when the contractions were every two minutes and I was trying to walk across the car park to get to the hospital, I still didn't believe I was going to have a baby at the end <laughs> of that. I was just like, well, we'll just have to see. And so it was actually a, a massive shock when they said, oh, you know, you've got a little girl, handed me this little girl. I just, I could not believe it had happened. You heard there from Jessica, who, along with her husband Mark and family and friends, celebrated their daughter Elizabeth's first birthday earlier in the year. So what we were trying to do with this paper is to demonstrate the ability to type using brain signals. Anywhere between approximately four and approximately eight words per minute, a factor of between two and four faster than what's been demonstrated before. Each month, the eLife podcast talks to some of the world's best scientists. Join me, Chris Smith, as I hear about breathtaking discoveries hot off the press. Find the eLife podcast on iTunes or listen and download for free from nakedscientist.com slash eLife. You're listening to a special edition of The Naked Scientist, and this week we're celebrating 40 years since the first baby was born by IVF. We're here from her later. We'll also hear from more people like Jessica, who's been through the very same process. But first, what actually happens in the lab in a fertility clinic? I went to Bourne Hall in Cambridge, the clinic set up by Bob Edwards, Jean Purdy and Patrick Steptoe, following their success creating Louise Brown. And there I met embryologist Adam Burnley, who took me through the IVF process they use at the clinic. And in all cases, his first job is to assess the fitness of the father's sperm. We're looking for numbers of sperm, how well those sperm are moving, and the sort of abnormalities within the sperm. I'm looking at the computer screen. That's someone's sample, as seen down the microscope. Talk me through what, what's on there. What the software associated with this uh, equipment does is identify the, the sperm heads, so anything of that size and shape, it will track individually and it will work out how quickly that sperm is moving forward, uh, whether it's moving at all, and will give us a precise number of sperm so that we can base our treatment recommendation on that, on the results. How do you then make a judgment about the most effective way to treat that patient based on what you see here? We take what the World Health Organization call a normal sample parameters, so a certain number of sperm, uh, the type of motility, and if the sperm parameters are above those, or what we would call a normal sample, we might just want to mix sperm with eggs and let the sperm fertilise those eggs on their own. If the parameters fall lower than those, we might decide that we need to inject sperm individually into eggs to enable those to fertilise and to create embryos. What happens next? We'll go through to the lab and where the theatres are, and I'll I'll try and explain what happens. Um, The female patient will need some preparation before they come in for an operation to harvest any eggs. And what that involves is stimulating the patient with fertility drugs, which makes them hopefully produce more than the usual one egg per cycle. And that happens in here. So this looks a bit like an operating theatre. So we have an anaesthetic machine, if if necessary, a scanning machine, so that when the surgeon's doing the collection, they can see the patient's ovaries on a screen, and therefore they can use a metal needle attached to a probe to suck out the eggs from each of the follicles. And depending on how many follicles that patient has grown in response to the fertility drugs, um, hopefully we should collect a corresponding number of eggs from those follicles. How many eggs do you get from someone for each cycle like that? The average number of eggs that we collect from patients is about 10. 
Um, but some patients will get one egg collected, some patients will stimulate much more and get 30 or 40 eggs collected. And we, as the doctor's doing the egg collection, we'll let them know how many eggs they're collecting. They are put into a culture media which keeps them at the optimal conditions until we're ready to do either IVF or the injection of sperm. And if you decide to go down the route of what they call ICSI, intracytoplasmic sperm injection, which is why it gets called ICSI, I'm guessing, yes, where right, you yes. literally are injecting a sperm into an egg. What happens then and where do you do that? Do you want to come through here and I'll show you where we perform that procedure. What we'll have to do before the ICSI procedure is to assess how many of the patient's eggs are suitable for that procedure, and usually we find about 80% will be. What we then do is, we, under a high-power magnification, we have to select an individual sperm, immobilise that sperm by hitting it on the back of the neck with a needle uh, and we then inject that sperm into each of the suitable eggs. We hope that about 70% of those eggs that have that procedure will fertilise. And hopefully by that stage the person has a reasonable prospect of getting a fertilised egg. What do you do then? We'll want to culture those and grow them for a few days until the embryo reaches the appropriate stage for us to select the most likely one that we think is going to implant. So it takes about five days before you're in a position to, to put the developing embryo back into the woman? Yes, that's right. The embryo, when it gets to about day five, it becomes what we call a blastocyst. So its cells have different functions within the embryo, and the embryo needs to do that in order to implant. This is one of the incubators. It's got a series of drawers on the top. I can see you've been putting some of the dishes which have got the developing embryos in. The amazing thing, there is a huge screen on here and we can see embryos developing. The, I can see cells dividing here. You're watching these things in almost real time. Yeah, that's right. I mean, this is a relatively new technology in that um, in normal incubator conditions, you would look at your embryos once a day, whereas this is taking a picture of the embryo every five minutes so we can review its development to see whether the embryo has followed the right patterns of development. This one's just gone from one cell to two cells, four, now we're at eight 16. Yeah. That's amazing. That's, yeah. a, that's a human well, developing. Yeah, and to see it happen in a, that time-lapse quick play is, is an amazing thing, really. You can watch five days of development in, in two minutes. I wouldn't get any work done if I worked <laughs> in this lab, because I'd be stuck here watching this amazing bit of technology. And really. You would be able to tell from those pictures what one looks promising and what one's not going to make the grade, can you? On day five, we look at all the embryos, see which one has uh, developed to the best stage, but then we can review the footage of that embryo developing and possibly deselect or select embryos to transfer based on that information. This person here has got quite a lot of embryos cooking. You're going to be able to put how many back into that person and what do you do with the rest of them? Okay, well, the law allows us to put either one or two embryos back, depending on their circumstances. If the patient has then other embryos which have reached the right stage, we could possibly freeze surplus embryos, which means the patient could come back if they're not successful. How do you get that back into the woman? We have to pick the embryo up in a really tiny amount of culture media in what we call a transfer catheter, a sterile uh, floppy plastic tube which is attached to a small syringe take it through to the surgeon who has the patient prepared for the transfer and he will feed the soft catheter through the cervix directly into the uterus, press the plunger on the syringe and the embryo or embryos will be deposited in the uterus in the, in the right place. Does the lady have to lay there with her legs in the air for hours on end? Not anymore. It used to happen so used to a do long that. time. Yeah, yeah. A patient would sit for three or four hours sometimes either in bed or with, the, with their legs up in the air, the fear being that the 
embryos would drop, drop out. out. Yeah. yeah, but I mean, a lot of studies have shown that that is absolutely not necessary. The embryo transfer procedure means you can walk down to theatre, have your transfer. The whole process takes about fifteen minutes, and then you can go home and resume your your normal life and hope for the best. And what's the soonest you would know if it's worked? Really, the earliest is about a day eighteen home pregnancy test that all the patients do. Adam Burnley there from Bourne Hall Clinic in Cambridgeshire. Now, fertility science has come such a long way in the 40 years since IVF began to be used. But even so, overall, only about 30% of treatment cycles are successful. Sadly, this means that at least two-thirds of people don't achieve the outcome they had hoped for. Here's Emma Jane's story. Me and my partner had been trying for about six years to have a baby and then we realised that something was definitely wrong. We decided to go to the doctors and have some tests done. They revealed that my husband had very low sperm count and they wasn't the right shape or form. Also, I found out later on that I had polycystic ovaries. So the only way forward from there was IVF which turned out to be ICSI. At first, it was absolutely heartbreaking, knowing that you can't do something that you're naturally meant to do as a female. (laughs) But once we spoke to the doctors and the nurses and they reassured us, I mean, they were fantastic. Of course, there's an emotional side of it, which was hard to deal with and is still hard to deal with. Um, You never really get over it. You know, it was a good opportunity and we thought we'd, we'd take it. Tell me a bit about it. What did it involve? A lot of emotions. <laughs> it's a massive, massive roller coaster. Hormones, injections, it makes you a complete different person. One of the injections, one of my doctors said that it would make you feel like you're in early menopause stages, which they were right. Night sweats, hormonal swings, hair loss. <laughs> we then had the eggs taken. And they then inseminate afterwards um, the eggs with the sperm. So they call you and they keep you updated on your eggs. There was nine eggs. One made it to blastocyst stage. They show you a picture of your embryo when you go back in on the day that they implant it. They show you on the screen and you can see it go in, (laughs) which is amazing, absolutely amazing. It's like a little white light that goes in. Then you have to wait two weeks to take a pregnancy test. Um, and it came back positive the first time. We were really, really happy, but we had to wait about six weeks to go back into the clinic so they could do the first scan. They took me into the room, and I sat in the chair. You could see on the screen it was a little baby. Um, The nurse's face kind of did give it away a little bit that there was something wrong. turned out that the amniotic fluid in the sac, there wasn't enough of it, and... The heartbeat was very, very low. So they told me that it was probably not an ongoing pregnancy and just to prepare for the worst. So we did. My partner and I stuck together like glue. (laughs) We were each other's rocks and he was absolutely fantastic. After that, I had the miscarriage um, and it took me a while to get over that but we, we knew that we wanted to try again. Emma Jane and her husband Malcolm had a second round of IVF, along with a drug intended to reduce the risks of miscarriage. 
But unfortunately, none of the resulting embryos became blastocysts. From the first time, we were absolutely broken hearted. Um, but for the second time, we kind of went in with a different look on it. We thought, okay, if this doesn't work, this doesn't work. But there are always other options like adoption and egg donation and that we didn't really know of at the time. It did hurt, but we got through it a lot easier than the first time. It's a year on from the second try. I mean, we are looking to adopt at the moment, but we're also keeping our options open for other treatments. Um, it's just the financial side of things that we can't really afford it at the moment. That was Emma Jane recollecting her story for me. Now, as Emma Jane alluded to, the process of fertility treatment is an emotional, financial and physical roller coaster. Jackie Stewart is an independent counsellor who supports patients going through IVF at Bourne Hall. I think it's important to include any form of counselling for people's psychological and emotional journey. So there are two types of counselling, really. Implications counselling is for anybody undergoing donor treatment or, or surrogacy. And then there's support counselling or therapeutic counselling, which involves supporting a person's feelings through this journey. Can you give me an idea of some of the emotional problems someone might experience having fertility treatment? Not everybody experiences what I'm going to tell you, especially if it works first time. Having said that, if they come back for more treatment and it doesn't work, they can start to experience some of these effects. They may start to experience the effects of something that is likened to a grieving process because there is a feeling of a sense of loss. The further the, down the line that you get with treatments not working, the harder the impact, higher the anxiety, the stress levels start to come up. Of course, no one has fertility treatment in isolation from the rest of their life. You're still going on doing your day-to-day -day things. You might have a job, you might have caring responsibilities. Can the stress of fertility treatment trickle into other aspects of your life and how do you deal with that? It can be overwhelming. It affects every part of your life. The longer you're in it, the harder it gets. Stress and infertility can't be separated. So it affects working capacity. Sometimes people keep it to themselves completely. They have little or no support. Other times companies are very good and they do share it with family and friends. But it's a very individual thing. It's hard to talk about because it's a private matter. And so just understanding and acknowledging people's feelings can really help. And often men and women cope differently. I'm generalising, of course. But um, when you've got two different coping mechanisms in a, in a partnership, that can sometimes isolate people from each other. So it's helpful to come and talk to a counsellor or talk to other people through a support group and to understand that your feelings are very normal. The point of the counselling really is to support your feelings, help you to find ways through the treatment, help you to cope better so that you feel less overwhelmed. So there are coping strategies, there are lots of websites, networks, books, support group. There are ways of helping a person to feel less alone with this and that's the whole point really and to feel reassured that there is a way through it. Can you tell me a bit more about implication counselling? 
for the majority of people, there is a, a gap between having your own biological child and moving on to using donor gametes. They may need just a short space at least to consider the implications of that and what that means to them. How will the partner feel about that? When would they tell their child? How will they tell their child? How will they support their child if the child wants to find out more about the donor? All the legalities of that. There are so many implications. Obviously, the best case scenario is to end up with a successful pregnancy and a healthy baby or multiple babies. Mm -hmm. That doesn't happen for everyone. How do you come to terms with that? If you're trying to decide to end treatment, that's one of the hardest decisions you'll ever make. So it's really important that you reach out for some support. And it could be that you decide um, to move on to another form of parenting, which is absolutely wonderful and there's lots of support there. But for those people that have been through this process and maybe it's been a, an arduous time for them, they need more support and lots of understanding. This is a stressful situation that you're going through. So what I would say is to not be too hard on yourself and be compassionate to yourself. You are a patient. And what would you be saying to say a best friend if they were going through this? That it might be in a long held dream. And so to just give yourself permission to do or not do things, you know, there are people around you that actually are really waiting to help, but they just don't know how to. So if you can be clear with what you might need from people and then communicate that. That was Jackie Stewart. And for more information about accessing emotional support associated with infertility, we'll be publishing some links on our website, nakedscientist.com. Now, some people seek IVF because they've struggled to conceive naturally. Others have the decision forced upon them by an unexpected situation that could otherwise rob them of their chance to have children later. Tanya is one of those, and she and her partner Brendan now have embryos frozen, ready for when they decide to take the next step. I just turned 25, and then five days later... I found out that I, I had leukaemia. I remember breaking down in the living room. Brendan ran out to get my dad because he was working um, on the car and on the drive. And he brought my dad in. My dad calmed me down enough for me to tell them. My dad rang my mum. My mum came home from work. My brothers were involved. Like, the whole family came to hospital with me. It was incredible. They've been that supportive from day one, which has been amazing. The chemotherapy didn't work. So my next step was to have a stem cell transplant. Um, I was very lucky that my brother was 100% match um, for a donor. Obviously, it's horrible having cancer, but everything seemed to just fit into place. It was all very, very lucky, and it went as probably as well as it could have done. And then I managed to go, go back home, you know, regularly checked up at hospital. I was very unwell because before the um, transplant, I had to have another round of chemo and full body radiation hence where the IVF comes in before you have full body radiation they kind of said once you've had it that's it I took the news of not being able to have my own kids worse than finding out I had cancer which is strange now I think about it because obviously there is things like IVF and you know you can adopt and you know there's other options out there but when I found out I had the cancer, it was, you're going to have to go through this, then you'll be fine. When I was told about the kid thing, yes, there are other options, but I'll never be able to have, you know, my own biological children. And that absolutely crushed me. I think it was even worse because 
I think I found the one guy that wanted kids very, very young. By that time, turning 25, I was ready. You know, it was finding a job so that we had a stable income between us and then kids. That was my next step in kind of, you know, life plan. So again, I think that's why it hit so hard. It being taken away before you even had chance to, to try. Addenbrooke's Hospital and Bourne Hall just worked so well together. They got everything done so quickly that it was possible for me to have the IVF done. Basically, a lot of people who have cancer, who have treatments, don't have the time in between their chemotherapy to have IVF done. You need a certain amount of break off of chemotherapy. You can't have any chemo while you're having the IVF done. I'd finished my chemo and I had about maybe a three three week break before I was going to have the radiotherapy done. And again, if they hadn't worked so well together and got everything sorted so quickly, it never would have been able to happen. Yeah, now we have nine frozen embryos waiting for us. You heard there from Tanya Hill, who's thankfully now in remission. The Naked Scientists podcast is produced in association with Spitfire. Cost-effective voice, internet and IP engineering services for UK businesses. Find out how Spitfire can empower your company at spitfire.co.uk. And we're celebrating Louise Brown, the world's first IVF baby's upcoming 40th birthday, by looking down the microscope at IVF and how it impacts people's lives. Shortly, we're going to hear from two new parents of twins who have a very interesting story to tell. And we'll also hear from IVF first herself, Louise Brown. But before that, Bourne Hall research scientist Kay Elder took me through her collection of memorabilia, documenting the story of how Bob Edwards, Jean Purdy and Patrick Steptoe made it all happen. It's a girl. Here she is, the lovely Louise. The first test tube baby is born and medical history is made as a mother's dream comes true. You've got the original press cuttings when the Daily Mail, which is dated Wednesday, July 26th, 1978, cost the princely sum of eight pence. (laughs) In order to arrive at this day with the birth of Louise Brown, where did the story begin and how long had they been working on this in order to achieve the birth of Louise? The story began when Patrick and uh, Bob Edwards met at a meeting in at the Royal College in London on February 28, 1968. Bob had had uh, visions of what he wanted to achieve in terms of fertilising human eggs in vitro, and he needed the help of a clinician. Patrick immediately understood what the goal was, and they decided to begin collaborating. What was Patrick's contribution then that caught Bob's eye? The development of what we now call keyhole surgery, a laparoscopy, which is now commonly used in all different fields of medicine. But in the 1960s, it was yet to be developed. And Patrick heard about this technique that was being pioneered, and he developed his own expertise by practicing in the post-mortem room. So he's developing this technique to look inside tummies. What's the relevance of that to fertility treatment and fertility research? Patrick could see by looking inside tummies what the problem was. Some women had tubes that were blocked so that the egg could not pass into the womb. He could see abnormalities in the pelvis. He could see if there were bits of fibrous tissue, adhesions. Why was Bob interested in that? Because he had spent many years working on looking at the development of eggs. They decided to start collaborating Patrick is based up in Oldham near Manchester. Bob is based at his lab in the University of Cambridge. When Patrick was ready to 
to do a laparoscopy. Bob and Jean would load up the car with microscope, test tubes, culture medium, drive up there. And when Patrick was able to recover eggs, they put them into culture, looked at them under the microscope and watched to see if an embryo would develop eventually. And the patients who were undergoing this, what was then an experimental procedure, these are women who were hoping that they would have a baby through this sort of approach? Absolutely, definitely. So they were willing to take part in these sorts of, of studies. So what did they then do in order to achieve in vitro fertilisation? They had to work out how to recover the eggs. They had to work out how to manage them, how to look after them, how to nurture them, what kind of culture conditions, the temperature, the gas. And once they were certain that the eggs appeared to be normal, they started fertilising them. But that's still eight years before these headlines we have on these newspaper cuttings in front of us. So what happened over eight years? Why did it take so long from having embryos to having a baby? Really, everything that's now taken for granted in IVF treatment, they had to work out from scratch. Getting the hormones exactly right at the time that the eggs were collected and when the embryos were put back. Looking at some of these other cuttings, the reception wasn't all positive, though, was it? Again, this is a Daily Mail editorial that you've got here. Amid the rejoicing, there are those who shiver involuntarily. Where, they ask, is all this going to end? The team themselves were an incredible set of uh, extraordinary individuals. They were always very positive and very optimistic. They were quite certain that what they were doing was correct. But you had people like James Watson on the scientific stage. This guy has enormous credibility, and he's saying, this is a bad idea. Absolutely, and it's extraordinary that um, they didn't let it get them down. You'd think then that having achieved this world first, things must have taken off. They must have then been, you know, had people biting their arms off to, to do work. Is that what happened? No, there was so much, <laughs> so much controversy and criticism that between 1978 and 1980, they had nowhere to continue working. And it took them two years to raise sufficient capital venture funding to open a private clinic because they eventually realised that this was their only option. They had hoped to have funding from the NHS, from the MRC. But the atmosphere in those days, thanks to people like uh, James Watson and Max Perutz, was so negative, their only option was to open a private clinic. And actually that led to the purchasing of where we're standing now, which is in Bourne Hall. They bought that and moved in here, 1980? September, September 1980. What were the other major developments along the way that have helped to keep Bourne Hall ahead and have helped to keep your success rate at what it is? Because it is one of the most successful clinics the country has. Well, the first transition really started in 1984 when an expert ultrasonographer by the name of Jill Williams came over from California and started using ultrasound to measure the growth of the little follicles that contain the eggs. This is physically looking physically inside the looking. woman at the development of the egg that you're going to harvest, or eggs you're going to harvest. That's right. Jill started by monitoring, just by putting an ultrasound probe on the lady's tummy and looking at the follicles, looking at the ovaries to see how they were doing. And then the next thing that happened was a, a doctor by the name of Rajat Goswami came uh, in 1985 and started trying to recover eggs using ultrasound guidance instead of opening up for a, a big operation like laparoscopy. By 1986, we were using ultrasound-guided egg collections, vaginal ultrasound, which is what everyone uses nowadays. So that was a major transition. 
But another major transition was the discovery by two of our scientists here at Bornholm, Colin Howells and Mike McNamee, that uh, patients who had high levels of a particular hormone, LH, in their urine were less likely to get pregnant than those who had lower levels at specific times during the cycle. And this led to the use of drugs that would suppress the hormone cycle that elevates LH. That made it easier to program and regulate when the eggs could be collected. Now, when did the atmosphere and the perception of the work that was being done here at Bournehall switch from being one of shivers going down people's spines and scepticism to one of positive reception? That really took quite some time. I think things started to shift when Dame Mary Warnock led a committee to look into the ethics of IVF. In fact, I think we were probably the first clinic in the world who had our own ethical committee. It's an amazing story, isn't it? That was Kay Elder speaking to me recently. And she also told us that uh, she thinks that now they've had about 20,000 babies born thanks to the efforts of Bourne Hall, which equates to about one every eight hours or so. Quite an undertaking, isn't it? People have IVF for a variety of different reasons, one of course being fertility problems. But Gary and Matt have a different story. I'm Gary. I'm Elliot. I'm Matt. I am Verity. (laughs) Matt and I went for an adoption meeting, which we decided shortly afterwards was uh, not a route that we wanted to, to go down. A couple of months later, we told our families that we'd done that um, and we're sort of thinking about starting a family but we're sort of back to square one really <clears throat> and then a few weeks later my amazing sister-in-law sent me a message and said that if we wanted to go down the surrogacy route she would be honoured if she would be able to carry or try to carry the baby it's an amazing thing to do and we will never be able to to thank her enough logistically it's it's a very long process There's a lot of red tape, forms to fill out, committees to go through, tests to have, decisions to make, but it's all worth it in the end, isn't it? The most incredible bit was when they actually put the eggs in and I was allowed to be there for that. On the screen, as these two little dots went in, and that's Elliot and Verity. Who is the biological father? Matt, this is you. Although there's no blood connection... Ollie was Gary's sister-in-law. The clinic and us felt that, you know, it didn't blur the lines if I was the biological father. And also, sort of personal medical history, it was easier on both counts for Matt to be the father genetically. Yes, it was a tough decision, and I thought it would bother me, but it really doesn't. And I just remember being in the bathroom, cleaning my teeth when the text message came through to say that she'd done the pregnancy test and she was pregnant. You and I just bursting into tears, (laughs) sitting down on the floor and just couldn't quite take it all in. I think we were both late for work that day. Um, What about the eggs? So the clinic found us an egg donor who'd obviously been through the whole screening process. The clinic give you information, yeah, about their history, medical, and, you know, a bit about their personality, their working life and their situation... Even their physical attributes, just so that you get a a picture 
you just go through so many different emotions during the process, you know, excitement, anticipation, fear. I mean, ultimately, you know, it's our dream come true. I think we never really wanted to believe it was happening until the actual moment that they were here. (laughs) Happy families. That was Gary, Matt and their twins, Verity and Elliot. Now, Cambridge-based GP Sarah Smith is still with us here in the studio. Sarah, considering all we've heard in the programme, what are your reflections in terms of people's fertility? Yeah, I mean, I think once you're over the age of 25, your fertility does start to decline. And once you're over 35, it declines even more quickly. So I think don't leave it too late. Do, if you're having problems, come along and see us and talk about it. We can refer you. You can have tests done. And I did read one statistic of ladies who are married over the age of 40. Four in 10 will get pregnant, but six out of 10 can have problems. So don't leave it too late and do think about all your options, stay safe, have safe sex and um, just a healthy lifestyle to maximise your fertility. Thank you very much, Sarah. Now, to finish this week, to the person who arguably began it all, the birthday girl herself, born 40 years ago. We met up in Grantchester, Cambridge, at a memorial service to unveil a plaque for Jean Purdy, who worked with Bob Edwards and Patrick Steptoe, and, as she puts it, watched her dividing in a dish when she was first conceived. Louise Brown, and I'm the world's first IVF baby. I was four years old, um, just before I started school, and mum and dad thought it would be best to just say that I was a little bit different to everybody else, the way I was born and conceived, because children can be quite cruel sometimes, and they just wanted to be so that I was aware that I knew if anybody said anything that I knew about it. I didn't fully understand it, but they showed me the video of my birth, said that was how I was born, slightly different, and they sort of left it there. And I picked up the rest of it, listening to mum and dad be interviewed. If I had any questions from mum and dad, I could ask them and they'd explain it to me. Do you get a lot of attention? On special occasions, yes. Whenever my birthday has a naught or a five on the end of it, people seem to get excited. So I'm semi-used to it. <laughs> when did it sort of dawn on you how special the process that resulted in you was? I think I must have been between 12 and 14. It was mainly coming to events here at Bourne that sort of brought it home when you see all the children and people used to say, yes, Louise, and you're the very first. And also the press wanting to take pictures or interviews. None of my friends did that, so... I wondered when you said about 14, because that would coincide with sex educations at school and that kind of thing. I wondered if that was what began to hone it down in your mind. Yeah, definitely, because I can remember we had... um, When I was in senior school, I went into the science lab and um, opened the science book and there was a big picture of me in there and the teacher said yes Louise you're in this book and I was all embarrassed surrounded by test tubes and and bunsen burners and things like that so yes my son's 11 and he is aware now of the difference the way I was born to the way he was born and are you an only child no my mum went on four years later to have my sister Natalie She was born in 1982, and she was the world's 40th. 40th test tube baby. Yes, yes. Do you like that phrase, test tube baby? Because it doesn't doesn't really involve a test tube, does it? 
I prefer IVF now. Everybody says IVF and I prefer that. Now, when you came to have your own kids, did it cross your mind at all or even before you had them? Um, you were born in a slightly special way. Might there be consequences for your own fertility? Did that cross your mind? I was always asked as I got older growing up, would I consider IVF? Um, and obviously, yes, I would. But I never actually thought I would need to. And this is the problem. You don't think about it when you're younger. So, And then when I, once I got married, um, two years later, I, we had Cameron. So I didn't sort of think about it. I just assumed, like most people do, that you've got no problems. And he came along naturally? Yes. Do you get asked by people about whether or not you're healthy? Because one of the worries that was expressed, even James Watson, DNA pioneer, was suggesting things like, we are playing God, we are potentially damaging the genetic integrity of the human race. Do you ever get asked that sort of thing? People do ask if I've had tests. I know I had a lot of tests when I was first born, um, but that's it. I haven't had anything since the day I was born. And you're otherwise pretty hale and healthy? Yeah, absolutely fine. I don't have any problems, conceive naturally. Yeah, I'm fine. What was the reaction of your parents to your arrival? Well, mum, I didn't, I don't think mum got to see me till the 26th of July because it was a C-section, so she was knocked out. Um, I think my dad, as I recall um, seeing on a video, I think he was shaken and had to give me back to the nurses because he was like, I don't think he could quite believe it. <laughs> and when you come back to Bourne Hall now, because obviously the people who made yourself, bit of a strange concept that, isn't it? <laughs> then set up Bourne Hall and have now helped tens of thousands of people since. What's it like when you come back? It's almost like my second home. Um, I love spending time with the people here. Um, it's beautiful grounds. Um, and also I've got really good memories of all four people that are unfortunately no longer with us there. So um, I love coming back. One of the staff at Bourne Hall said to me, it's quite unusual because when people come to have embryos put back, they often bring their mum and it's not normal that your mum's present at your conception. No, it's a bit weird. <laughs> my mum wasn't present at my son's conception, so... <laughs> Any parting message yeah, from anyone who sees if, if you're an IVF child, then we rock. <laughs> and um, if you're thinking of having IVF, go for it. Mum believed it would work and there are now, I think, nearer sort of 8 million of us, so... Yeah, go for it. That was Louise Brown there, and happy birthday, Louise, from all of us here at The Naked Scientists. Yes, indeed. Many happy returns, Louise. Well, that's all we've got time for this week. Thank you to everyone who took part in the programme. That's Adam Burnley, Kay Elder, Jackie Stewart, Azim Sarani, Sarah Smith and Louise Brown, and all the people who shared their experiences of IVF with us. Thank you to Katie Haler for putting the programme together. Now, do join us at the same time next week when we're going to be travelling into the future to the year 2100 to find out what's in store for us in terms of health, food, transport and the workplace. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the EPSRC and Rolls-Royce. I'm Chris Smith. Thank you for listening and until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.